Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be sharing with you a story from All the Best, the radio documentary and audio storytelling show that is created by community broadcasters all across Australia. Today, we're going to hear from producer Maya Pilbrow, uh, who has spoken to some activists dedicated to exposing the role of Australian-made weapons in human rights abuses in West Papua. And later in the show, I'll be joined by local award-winning poet Maria Takalanda to speak about her new collection called Trigger Warning. It is a collection that spans personal history, uh, domestic violence and kind of confronting ideas of the Anthropocene. That one is out through the University of Queensland Press. I hope you can stay with me for the next hour. Uh, Next up, we're going to take a story from All the Best, uh, a show where emerging Australian audio storytellers learn how to create narratives. It is a weekly podcast and community radio show. It's produced at FBI Radio in Sydney um, with Sin Media and Triple R here in Nam. And this next story comes from one of their latest episodes called Swarm, which is a showcase of work from Melbourne University audio journalism students who have responded to this theme A lot of companies in Australia make their money through the production and sales of security and defence technology. In other words, weapons. Maya Pilbrow talks to activists dedicated to exposing the role of Australian-made weapons in human rights abuses in West Papua. Making and selling weapons is a billion-dollar industry. The side of it we see in Australia is very sanitised. Think slick-looking ads with stylish colour grading, spouting buzzwords. Optimal security and environmentally sustainable mobility. Security requires well-equipped armed forces. The glossy ad campaigns don't mention the death and destruction Australian weapons cause overseas. A group of dedicated activists is exposing the reality of Australia's weapons trade and calling for collective action to put an end to the devastation. People might not be aware that Australian weapons are being sold to Indonesia and that these weapons are being used in West Papua. And they also might not be aware that the Australian SAS are training Indonesian special forces and that the Australian Federal Police are training Indonesian special police units. One of our closest neighbours, West Papua, is currently involved in a decades-long brutal struggle for independence from Indonesia. 
It's a vastly one-sided conflict, with the Indonesian state benefiting from the support of foreign governments like our very own. Make West Papua safe, it's a very targeted campaign to support peace and justice in West Papua by slowing down or hopefully stopping the flow of weapons and training that come from foreign governments and corporations to the Indonesian army. Make West Papua Safe and Wage Peace are two activist groups fighting to bring recognition to various human rights abuses in West Papua and around the world. Part of this battle is protesting arms conventions like Land Forces 21, which is being held in Brisbane this year. So Land Forces is a great big weapons dealing event where hundreds of weapons corporations and defence professionals will get together and spruik their wares to militaries and police forces. Land forces is where the deals get done that result in war crimes in other countries, including West Papua. So why do we, as Australians, have such a blind spot when it comes to our actions overseas? Uh, Australians generally don't pay attention much to what's going on with militarism. But we're using disrupt land forces as a type of campaign to um, to bring people's minds together to see what is happening in the weapons trade. We all need to educate ourselves about like, oh, hey, this is happening. Australian have a culture of denial. I mean, look, look for the local Indigenous people themselves. There's a dark history made by the, the colonizer in this country and it comes the same with other countries that Australia being involved with the, with, with the colonization. So there's been a media blackout on West Papua from the get-go. Australia is very complicit in the genocide that is happening in West Papua. For the Australian government and the Indonesian government, that information is something that they don't want out there. So They've gone to great effort to make sure that any media on the issue is silenced. It's starting to be heard a bit more now, and, you know, things are escalating there at the moment. But, yeah, it's been a long road for West Papua to get an international voice. What can Australians do to hold our governments and corporations responsible for the blood on their hands? We can bring this story up here, especially in Australia, with with the privilege we got, and we can ask straight away directly through a company like, hey, this is happening. Are you are you accountable for this? This is your bullet. West Papua will be like a little cage, a little Pacific Palestine. And yeah, it's a plea for, for West Papuan people to ask for international community to be politically active and involved to support West Papua independence movement and also to bring justice to human rights violations in West Papua. Ultimately, I don't want there to be a weapons industry. It's a kind of hangover from patriarchal kind of my guns bigger than your gun, colonial conquest. Yeah, take the toys from the boys. How can we show solidarity and unity in a world that profits off violence? There's people within the arms manufacturing industry, there's people in the docks, there's people loading the ships, there's people all the way along the chain of supply, there are people. And those people can make a difference. Those people can choose not to partake in the war machine. They can choose to halt that production and to stop this genocide continuing. And it's through direct action, it's through actually taking physical action that we can do this.
That story was produced by Maya Pilbrow with supervising production from Danny Stewart. You can also check out more stories at All the Best wherever you get your podcasts from. But if you do want to get involved, learn how to make your own audio stories, you can check out All the Best. They are currently accepting pitches. You can head over to allthebestradio.com to find out a little bit more. You are listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Trigger Warning is a new poetry collection that tackles domestic violence, complex personal histories, and environmental catastrophes. Award-winning local poet Maria Takalanda is the author and she joins me this afternoon to speak all about this collection. Maria, thank you so much for your time today. Hello, Beth, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to chat to you. I suppose to set the scene, are you happy to start with the reading? Yes, absolutely. I might um, start with a poem from the first section of the book, Mm Uh, which is about my experience of growing up in an environment of domestic violence and then having to deal with that legacy uh, into my adulthood. Um, I should start by saying that for the longest time I didn't know how to talk about what I'd lived through or the struggles I was having because no one else was talking about it. And so I found inspiration in the confessional poets of the 50s and 60s, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, who did write about these intense experiences that they'd had um, in a way that resonated with me. And so this poem that I'd like to read, Waking in the Blue, is actually uh, named after a poem by the confessional poet Robert Lau. Um, His poem is about his institutionalisation after a breakdown, but my poem is about what we might call my institutionalisation, along with my mother and sister, in a refuge for victims of domestic violence. Um, I suppose I should just read that now after that rather lengthy introduction. No, thank Um, you. waking, (laughs) Waking in the blue. The night attendant at the service station, which was garishly lit when I had thought the world extinguished, pumped $10 of fuel into our tank. My plastic money box looks childish on the car's back seat, but the silver coins that spill from its plug hole perform an unexpected magic. My mother has nothing, and I see how much it matters. She parks the Toyota on the side of the highway beneath some gums, their white trunks streaked by the comets of passing cars. My sister and I have a blanket gilded with synthetic stars. At break of day, we enter the police station in our dressing gowns. Two faceless men escort us home where gravity has finally pulled everything down. On the carpet are light fittings, the TV's vacant box, the top half of the laminated wall unit, drawers and their contents, folded maps, loose photographs, volumes of an encyclopedia with their hardcovers torn off. A more comprehensive list is not necessary. In truth, my room is not as damaged as I want it to be. My sister's has been carefully destroyed. My father is discovered in his bed, as eccentric and confused as one of your old-timers. But the police know to stay. 
while my mother sorts through the debris for a bank book and some clothes, and then the men in blue lead us away. There is a brick house with bars on every window, a room stuffed with bunks and a cumbersome wardrobe. At the kitchen table, women stub cigarette after cigarette into a tin ashtray, playing show-and-tell with scarves, picking over the ruins. My sister has faith in a new miracle of creation. But I am a child, not a visionary, and our mother has already surrendered to the diabolical romance of return. My father, cleanly shaven, stands at the door. Inside, Earth's furious pool has gentled again, allowing the furniture, what was left of it, to right itself. The place looks enough like our home and our father's face enough like contrition. We restore our toothbrushes to the bathroom shelf where our father's glistening razor rests. Mm. It's Maria Takalanda reading from her new poetry book, Trigger Warning, that poem, Waking in the Blue, addressed to Robert Lau. Maria, you kind of touched on this before you jumped into this poem, but this first section of the book is almost you being in conversation with these kind of confessional poets, as you've mentioned, Sylvia Plath, Anne Carson, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. I'm interested in, I suppose, why you chose these poets to kind of frame this first part of the book and perhaps if they gave you permission to um, be more confessional in your own poetry. Oh, I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, As I said, um, this is a very difficult subject for me to speak about. Mm. You know, even now it's it's just difficult um, to speak about this publicly and I think it's because Uh, domestic violence as an experience is so shrouded in silence. Um, You know, it relies on silence. It only happens because we're silent about it. And, you know, I know that I'm, you know, far from unique. I know that there are thousands and thousands of children um, living through experiences of domestic violence and thousands and thousands of adults who are currently dealing with the legacy of that particular childhood. And, I, you know, it was so difficult to find how to write about this because, as I said, no one else is writing about this or speaking about this, and you know, in the media. And it's fantastic to see this. You know, we do see more and more stories about, um, you know, the women uh, and the female partners who who are the victims of domestic violence. But there's very little about what children are going through, and in fact, that trauma is compared. Um, to the damage that happens to war veterans. Mm. Um, so in terms of trying to find a way to speak about this, you know, I, I did go back to those poets who were talking about difficult subjects and, and it was through them that I was able to find a way of, of talking about all of this, I suppose. Mm. And, yeah, as you said, these early poems really kind of, yeah, scratch at those ideas around the... The, I suppose, long-term effects or, or how the body responds to situations around domestic violence. I'm interested when you are writing about something that is perhaps so close to the bone, it, it, you know, it's speaking from memories that would be quite traumatic. What's the kind of um, emotional cost of, of writing about these relationships, particularly when, as you said, so much uh, around yeah. domestic violence has, has been shrouded yeah. in silence for so long? Oh, look, it's it's such a good question because, I mean, I suppose the assumption is that writing about it is cathartic. You know, that's what I often hear. You know, that when you write 
these things and you face these things, you feel better for it. But in fact, in my experience, it's at some level also re-traumatising because you're having to reoccupy that emotional space of, of deep distress and, and fear and, and panic and, and horror. And, you know, it's not a pleasant thing uh, to relive. And yet at the same time, you know, by ordering this stuff as information on the page, you do get a sense of control over the material. And so I suppose there's a, a sense of it being containable or orderly in a way that is kind of comforting, if not cathartic. Um, I'm not sure if I answered the question mm. there, but I think that's the best I can do. <laughs> you absolutely did. I, I, I'm very interested, I suppose, through reading this book, um, you know, kind of the second section kind of goes into... Uh, domestic life you kind of talk about animals you kind of trace uh, inanimate objects in your house and in very in a way it kind of reminds me of um, I suppose what the last 18 months have been like Um, I think people's relationships with their house and their physical space um, have changed a lot I suppose much in a similar way that when you are going through experience of uh, experiences of domestic violence your kind of day-to-day physical spaces change and that your relationships to them change. I'm interested, I suppose, can you tell me what you were trying to achieve with these um, poems about the domestic? Oh, well, I'm so glad I have to say that you made that connection because I have been uh, in lighter programs, I suppose, in lighter interviews presenting those poems in the second section of the book as lockdown poems Mm. because they are about things in the house that we've been trapped inside with Uh, you know, for weeks and sometimes months at a time. But, I mean, I did write them before lockdown. And I suppose, I mean, that second section of the book, it's called Domestic. And, of course, this is a euphemism for a fight inside the home. Mm. Um, But things that are domestic, the things inside the home, they take on a different quality in an environment of domestic violence. Um, So, you know, for instance, growing up, you know, I, the television was, was sometimes an object that I saw smashed, um, emptied out on the floor, the carpet. The pot plant was something which was often overturned and, and the soil spilled out. Um, the bed was a place of attack. There's one. There's, there's a poem in this section called Curtains and, of course, domestic violence is something that takes place behind closed curtains. Mm. But, I mean, so this section contains poems about, you know, the TV and the pot plant and, and all of those things. I think what I'm trying to do in this section is reframe my relationship with those things in a way that's untainted by my history. So I try to look at them as objects with their own histories and and their own meanings. And, you know, hopefully there's a lot to be enjoyed in that second section of of the book, Um, you know, because I do try to introduce some comedy and, you know, some humour and take a fresh look at these everyday things, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. I particularly loved the toilet, very small toilet poem (laughs) (laughs) where it just says, it was always a risk bringing it inside. We still prefer not to talk about it, Um, which is just, it's very funny and very observant and just excellent. And I think, yeah, as you said, I think particularly probably resonate with people just because of what people, how people have been spending their time um, recently. But yeah, just so witty and spot on. Um, I suppose as we kind of go through the collection, it kind of... um, starts to span out and look out further, look at the the impact that humans have had 
um, on the earth, that there really feels to be this kind of sense of movement throughout this collection, kind of maybe coming from quite deeply personal, kind of then perhaps looking further out. I'm interested if you can maybe tell me structurally what were you thinking um, and what, you were, what were you trying to achieve with this kind of motion throughout the book? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that first section, as, as you've indicated and, and as I've discussed, too, is, is very much about me. Uh, they're autobiographical poems. Um, but it's also uh, about a process of healing, I suppose. That's what I was trying to get across with the book. And so in that second section, I moved to um, rethinking the domestic space, you know, using comedy and... And, and other strategies like that to find a way out of domestic trauma, out of an, out of an idea of the home as just a place where bad things happen. Um, and in that third section, I suppose I'm ready to start looking outside the home. Um, but unfortunately, when we do look outside the home, there are all kinds of concerning and traumatic things also happening, climate change being the primary one. Um, and so I suppose, like, the poems in that third section of the book, Once Upon a Time, may have been called nature poems, uh, but mm. how do we write about nature now when nature is itself becoming so unnatural? Um, so, I mean, I, I do, you know, intentionally wanted that movement uh, towards healing, towards trying to break out of, you know, the claustrophobic, the domestic, the traumatic, and yet when I do turn outside... Um, there's not a lot of scope there for joy and, and optimism, though, Though again, you know, I do try to mix it up a little bit tonally there. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the journey that I was trying to convey, I suppose. If you have just joined us, I'm talking to Maria Takalanda about her new collection of poetry called Trigger Warning. Maria, I'd love to pick up on what you just said, talking about, I suppose, what was natural becoming unnatural. I think that you've portrayed this in a really interesting way in the forms that these poems have taken in the kind of um, back half of the book. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the forms that you've you've chosen to to kind of weave words through and 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 what those have kind of meant for the meaning of of this work yeah um well well as i said in an ideal world um that third section would have been a section of nature poems conventional celebratory nature poems about the wonder and magic of the world and yet when we look around us if we look around us honestly uh, how can we write a traditional poem in praise of the heron or or a sunset or, or a forest or a beach without acknowledging the changes, the awful changes, uh, the concerning changes that are being wrought by climate change and, and the Anthropocene? Mm-hmm. So um, the question then becomes, well, well, how do I write about the natural world? And for me, I have to really interrupt all of those traditional ways of of writing Uh, and I suppose I did that through mucking around with the form of poetry itself, introducing symbols, um, you know, uh, challenging um, readers to, you know, turn the book around and, you know, come to grips with with what I was saying there in quite quite a physical sense. Mm. 
Yeah, I definitely. That's something that I really loved about it. Just the, the yeah, the kind of um, energy or effort effort that it takes for a reader to physically, yeah, move the book around to physically look at something from a different point of view. It just felt very fitting to what you were speaking about. Um, Maria, I'd love if you were happy to perhaps share a poem from the kind of that third section. The third section um, of Nature Poems. These are actually uh, quite difficult to um, read because of the way that they're so meant for the page, you know, with the symbols and um, inviting the reader to move things around so that it's quite difficult to read those poems in a forum like this with, and in, in a sense that gives them... Um, uh, and in a way that does justice to what they're trying to do. So look, I hope you don't mind instead. <laughs> I take matters into my own hands um, and, and read a poem from the second section, which is about domestic objects. No, um, not a problem. Go for, go for it. Because hopefully it, it also uh, introduces a, a sense of what's more comic or light about the collection. And I thought I'd read the poem called uh, Television. Um, and, I, and I wrote this in part after noticing that the, my son's generation, I have a 12-year-old son, have absolutely no interest in the so-called box, <laughs> um, whereas, of course, an older generation, um, for an older generation, the television is still very much a centrepiece mm. of their lives. So this one is called Television. For millennials, spelt with the electromagnetic, the television will always carry a reputation for being outside they see Stalinist objet d'art, hairdos shaped like turbine engines. Desperate, the TV has made itself over, purging the unseemly bulk, inoculating itself from static with that slicked-back mannequin gloss. What it needs now is a different circle of friends. The question, how to leave behind those soft people, companionless even after all these years, still offering themselves to state programming with their cheap tumblers of hopes and fears. In the semi-dark, their faces are uncomprehending as moons. It's Maria Takalanda there. Uh, that poem is called Television, reading from Trigger Warning. Um, Maria, before I let you go, I, I, I read an article that you wrote recently for the conversation called How Poetry Helps Us Express Our Moments of Glory. Um, and you're kind of looking at poetry over the last few decades and looking at its place and I suppose how it's received by uh, the masses. I'm interested, you know, this is your fourth collection of poetry how have you seen, I suppose, the audience or, or readers change over that time? Do you feel like people are perhaps more open to poetry now or what's your relationship with your audience? I love my audience, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, that Amanda Gorman has had such a hugely beneficial impact on poetry and, and how it's received and I think that she arrived at exactly the right time, you know, after we'd all been locked in our houses and, you know, suffering from isolation and, you know, worried about the end of the world and, and the plague that had, had, you know, been set upon us. Um, and, and here she was, you know, moving us, inviting us to respond to her uh, through her extraordinary poetry. Um, and I think it, it resonated so much with audiences because we were ready to be moved 
You know, we were ready to feel, and, and that's, of course, what poetry can make us do. I mean, poetry is a special way of communicating, and it's a way of communicating that taps into our feelings. Um, and, you know, I know that that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and people often say, oh, I don't understand poetry. Um, but I think poetry does work at the level of feeling or intuition. Mm. Um, you know, just think about how you feel when you're in a forest or looking at a sun setting over the ocean. You're just overwhelmed by a feeling that isn't easy to capture or describe. So, I mean, feeling is at the centre of some of our best experiences and I think poetry at its best can also tap into uh, these feelings that we have about being alive and we don't necessarily need to understand that effect at a rational level. It's okay just to feel. It's more than okay to feel. You know, that this is, as Amanda Gorman shows, it can be a, a really magical and unifying experience. And I think, you know, as a final word, word I mean, I think it's important to remember um, that it's the lack of feeling. I mean, poetry is often associated with madness, I think, because of this connection with feeling. But it's important to remember that it's the lack of feeling that makes someone a psychopath. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the lack of feeling that's a problem. So, um, you know, I don't think uh, poetry needs to apologise for that. Mm, I think that's a beautiful summary of what poetry is and what it can bring everybody. So thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. Um, Maria, thank you so much for your time today for chatting to us about your new collection. Oh, no, I'm delighted. Thank you, Beth, for your support and having me on the show. An absolute pleasure. We were just chatting there with Maria Tackerlander all about her new collection called Trigger Warning. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. That's right, you are listening to Triple R. It is almost time for me to get on out of here. Always a pleasure being with you here in the Glass House. I do want to say big thanks to Maria there for chatting all about her brand new work, Trigger Warning. That one is out through UQP. And also, if you're listening before and you do want to get involved in all the best audio storytelling program, that is created by community radio stations all across the country. You can head over to allthebestradio.com and you can find out a little bit more information. And until then, have a great day and keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.